0: Thank you, Connie, and Emily, and Kay. The kingdom of God is on the move, huh? We are looking at the kingdom of God in a series. This is week two, the kingdom of God, a biblical perspective, and we're seeing that the kingdom is a key theme in the Bible, is it not? The beautiful thing about it, it's not just an idea or a theology to look at, but it's a story that we're drawn into. We actually participate in the kingdom of God. So as we study it, we look into the scriptures, we pray, and the Lord says, you have a role to play. I have given you gifts. I've given you the power of the Holy Spirit, and you actually get to partner with me in expanding the kingdom of God, a kingdom of love. Our text this morning is Genesis 12, so if you want to look there, I'll have slides for you to see it. This text is one of the most important in the entire Old Testament. It is what I call a fountainhead passage, one that embodies and explains many themes that unfold in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And like the passage we looked at last week, Genesis 1, this is a kingdom passage. We saw last week that the kingdom of God was in the heart of God from the very beginning. Man and woman were created and called to rule and reign with God, serving his vice regents on the earth. But because of our rebellion against God, we forfeited our right to rule with God. Do you remember that? Those of you that heard that last week, today we're going to see that part of God's kingdom solution is the calling of Abraham and Sarah. So Genesis 12, 1 to 9 says this. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took his wife Sarai and his brother Son Lot and all the possessions that they had gathered and the persons whom they had acquired in Haran and they set forth to go to the land of Canaan. When they had come to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak at Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring I will give this land." So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved on to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and AI on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and invoked the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on by stages toward the Negeb. This section falls into two main parts. You can see it there. In verses one to three, God calls Abraham. And Abraham responds to God in verses 4 through 9. We're going to unpack these two parts. And as we do, I'm going to ask you to view these nine verses through the lens of the kingdom of God. This passage reveals first and foremost that the Lord who saves and blesses the nations Is found in these passages here and the Lord calls his people to partner with him in bringing salvation and blessing to all the nations of the world the first part here look at verses 1 through 3 here and I want to preface by saying Abram was a pagan he lived about 2,000 years before Jesus he was married to a lady named Sarai and his name ends up eventually changed to Abraham And her name ends up changed to Sarah. And because we're more familiar with these names, I'm actually going to use them. And Stephen did this actually in Acts 8. He spoke of Abraham and Sarah. So Abraham's father, Terah, was an idolater. This helps paint some of the picture here. He worshiped other gods. This Abraham's father. And Abraham actually lived in a city called Ur of the Chaldeans when the Lord first called him. Ur was an ancient Sumerian city in current-day Iraq. Little geography here. This city where Abraham lived was devoted to their local moon god, Nana. Why is this important? I'm not just giving you geeky information. First, what the author is conveying is that Abraham did not know God. In fact, he worshipped idols false gods, and is a lost soul. So what is about to happen between God and Abraham is an act of grace. Second, the author is linking this story of Abraham to the story in the previous chapter, chapter 11 about the Tower of Babel, and we'll come back to this in just a minute. So look at verse one here. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country. So the Lord spoke to him, What's interesting about this word here, this is the same language that's used in the creation story that we looked at last week. Then God said. So the creative God of the universe is speaking again in this passage, calling forth new creation, this time through Abraham and Sarah, who live in darkness and serve other gods. However, the text doesn't specify exactly how the Lord spoke to Abraham. Later in this chapter, at verse seven, we'll see that the Lord actually appears to Abraham. The God of the Bible is a God who speaks, amen? Who appears, who reveals, who gets involved in our lives. We interact with the same God today, One of my favorite quotes by Richard Foster, the author says, the God of the Bible did not get laryngitis. God still speaks today. He says to go. He tells Abraham and Sarah to leave their country, their kindred, their father's house. This is a sequence of increasingly intimate things that underscore The cost of the call here. I can't help but think, as I read this, of the same command given by Jesus to his disciples. What does he tell them in Matthew 28, 19? Go and make disciples of all nations. Hidden in this command here in Genesis 12 is the Great Commission. Reaching and redeeming the nations is on the heart of God, from the beginning of the biblical story. He tells him to go to the land that I will show you. Abraham's ultimate destination is unclear. He's simply told to go. Before it's over, the journey of Abraham and Sarah will move in an arc shape through the fertile crescent in ancient Mesopotamia, following the Euphrates River from Ur to Haran, to Canaan, to Egypt, It's about 1,500 total miles. His journey would take him to places that we know, Syria, Lebanon, Israel, Jordan, Egypt. It is a long journey. But at the beginning, he does not know where he is going. The call of God, as we see here, can be risky. Lord, where exactly am I going? Where in the world are you leading me? As I was pondering this, I thought of a famous Frenchman, a physicist and philosopher named Blaise Pascal. He lived in the 17th century and he wrote a series of reflections called the Pensees. And in them, he appeals to readers to navigate life using the full power of reason under the direction of God. Accordingly, Pascal proposes an argument now known as Pascal's wager. Some of you know that. It came to mind as I was looking at this passage about Abraham. In short, Pascal argued that we can bet or wager with our lives in one of two ways. One, we can bet that there is a God and live for him, like Abraham did here. Or two, we can bet that there is no God. And live as if God does not exist. Pascal proposes that it is more reasonable to bet your life on God's existence. And live for him. Especially in light of the possibility of eternal existence. The point is, there is an element of risk in faith. Is there not? Abraham's life illustrates this clearly. The Lord spoke to him. He had a choice to make. Do I bet my very life, my family, all that I am, all that I have, that this God is real, that I'm being called to put it all on the line to answer and follow? Yes, a life of faith can be more demanding But I'm here to tell you this morning, it can also be more rewarding. We see in the text at verse 2, these promises begin to roll out. In verses 2 through 3 here are seven promises clustered together, what's called a heptad or a group of seven, something that's found in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. We find the Apostle Paul using this in Ephesians 4 clustering things to, together the first promise look at what the first promise is there in verse 7 what is it i will make of you a great nation this is remarkable in light of what genesis 11:30 says abraham's wife sarah was barren she had no child and this is who the lord chooses a woman who can't have children. As the story unfolds, Sarah does give birth to Isaac. So a first step of fulfillment to the promise comes to fruition. From this tiny little family will come a great nation, Israel. So this theme of God bringing forth life out of barrenness, both physical and spiritual, becomes a recurring theme through the rest of the Old Testament. The king, in all his power, mercy, and kindness, takes our barrenness, our barren situations, and brings forth the life of the kingdom. I'm sensing something this morning, actually. I know that this touches a nerve with some of us who have trouble getting pregnant, and I am sensing that we're actually supposed to pray for people this morning. So during ministry time, I'm going to ask if, if this is a nerve for you and you're having difficulty getting pregnant, we want to pray. Why? Because the scriptures teach us to do that. We're not proclaiming that anything is guaranteed to happen, but we pray because the scriptures teach us to. They say lay hands on people. So we're going to do that this morning. Is that all right? The second promise amplifies the first. It simply says that to be made into a great nation means the Lord's blessing rests on you. The third promise here, what does it say? I will make your name great. This is interesting for a couple of reasons. One, it subverts the story in the previous chapter. Do you remember what happened with the Tower of Babel? What did the people say? Come, let us build ourselves a city. And what do they say? Let us make a name for ourselves. Old Testament scholar, a guy named Victor Hamilton, says this, the builder's aggressiveness is matched by Abraham's passiveness. If his name is ever to become great, it will not because of any self-initiated effort. The great name will be a gift, not an achievement. Secondly, the promise to make Abraham's name great is royal language. Listen to this. It's the language of the kingdom. Later in Genesis chapter 17, Abraham is promised that kings will come forth from him. And Sarah is actually called the mother of kings. Here in this promise, right here, is the kernel of the kingship of Israel. Later, God will say to King David, I will make your name great. And in the New Testament, as we were singing this morning, we see that the messianic son of David, the Lord Jesus, the king of all kings, is given what? The name above all names. Paul says in Philippians 2. The fourth promise, look here, look at the text. says, these things happen, why? So that you will be a blessing. This is linked to the first command of go. So it means this, if you go, Abraham, then you will be a blessing. Another commentator says this, that this verse right here is pivotal. For the blessings of God are not to be turned in on Abraham. A great nation, blessed. A great name, yes. But Abraham must be more than a recipient. He is both a receptacle for these blessings and a transmitter of them. Do you see that? He's blessed so that he can in turn be a conduit of the blessing and love and presence of God. At the age of 24, on a ministry trip to Germany, I had the opportunity to spend time with a remarkable lady who knew what it was like to leave her homeland and her family and go to be a blessing to others outside her country. Jackie Pullinger, born in 1944 in Croydon, a town in South London, says that she was called by the Lord through the scriptures, this passage, in fact, through dreams, and through prophetic words, and the Lord told her to go. So in 1966, at age 22, it's Jackie there on the left, Jackie didn't know how to go, so she looked up missionary societies in the white pages There in London, she was told that she couldn't go by the first group that she contacted until she was 25 because you must first attend missionary training school. Instead, being the obedient person that she was, Jackie spoke with a vicar, a clergyman in East London. When this vicar heard her story, he said, Jackie, why don't you get on a boat and ask God to tell you when to get off. He was probably discerning something about this fiery young woman. She replied, is this a good idea? (laughs) Is this right? And the vicar said, Jackie, it's biblical actually. God told Abraham and Sarah, leave, and I will tell you where to go. He didn't know where he was going, Jackie, and he spent a number of years getting there, but he went because he believed. So Jackie said, the vicar was smart. He encouraged an adventure. Maybe I, should, I would share Jesus with one sailor. Maybe I would stop in Singapore and play the piano for some people. I couldn't lose. Maybe I would be gone a few weeks. That wasn't the case. Jackie ended up getting off the boat in Hong Kong and going to Kowloon. I have an image up there that you can see the walled city known as the city of darkness. It was an illegal city that was left out of the treaty between Britain and China. You can see it there in the background is Hong Kong and the mountains. And they're squished like a mildewed sandwich there. That is the walled city. Listen about it. Some 50,000 people crammed into this 16-acre, 14-story-high place, making it the most densely populated spot in the world by 1987. It became a prime spot for unfettered illegal activities, triad gangs, drug dealing, prostitution, you name it. A friend asked Jackie, to teach in a school in the walled city a few days a week. She liked being there, the place and the people. When asked about what it was like to be in the walled city, Jackie said, one in four people in the world lives like this anyway. I could have been born here, been sold to a brothel, or had needle marks on my arms. Why wasn't it me? I got to choose to believe in Jesus, and I would like to give others here the same choice. That is precisely what Jackie Pullinger did. Over the next four decades, Jackie and teams she mobilized helped thousands of people come to Jesus, get off opium and other drugs, leave lives of prostitution and triad gangs, and establish new lives in community and business. Her work has spread from Hong Kong to the Philippines and other places along the Silk Road affected by opium trade. You can read her mind-blowing story in the book, Chasing the Dragon. It's a dangerous read, but I dare you to read it. True, many of us won't get on a boat Get off in a city of darkness or establish a ministry among triad gang members, prostitutes, and drug addicts. Some of you might. But the same word that God spoke to Abraham, go, that inspired Jackie, can ring in our ears now. How and where is God calling you to go? The point is to respond and learn to take bold steps. It might entail going to serve with Steve Hartman and others at the nursing home, or volunteering with Gretchen to read with at-risk students at Greystone Elementary, or establishing a mentoring presence at John Marshall High School just a few blocks from here. Why? Because we have been touched by the love of God and we grow in the love of God as we go. The fifth and sixth promises here, look back at the text. The Lord says that he will bless those who bless Abraham and curse those who curse him. This speaks of personal protection of Abraham and Sarah and his family. In the rest of Genesis, things go well for those who treat Abraham well. And things play out negatively for those who do not treat them with respect. A clear example of this is seen later when Pharaoh tries to steal Sarah. Do you remember it? To take him as his wife. Consequently, Pharaoh's palace is struck with plagues. Pharaoh returns Sarah smartly to Abraham and tells him what? To go So this Hebrew word keeps popping up in the story over and over. Go, go, go. This story actually foreshadows the subsequent Exodus story when the Lord strikes Egypt with plagues and delivers Israel from slavery. We're gonna look at this next Sunday actually because it conveys many things about the kingdom of God. The seventh and final promise here is the culmination. Listen to this. In you, all the families of the earth Shall be blessed. So notice the progressive buildup of the previous promises. Do you see it? Abraham alone is blessed. Abraham's name is used as a blessing. Abraham's blessers are blessed. And now all the families find blessing in Abraham. So the mystery of the kingdom of God can be discerned here. One, the Lord picks unlikely people, and two, a promise is made. Of blessing for all the nations. Later in Genesis 22, God says to Abraham, in your seed or descendants, it's a Hebrew word for descendants, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. I had a Hebrew professor at Trinity, the, long, the late John Salehammer, and he says that in this right here, in the book of Genesis, a curtain on the future is drawn back and we get to glimpse the future seed of Abraham. This seed who is to come, and just stick with me for a moment here, to whom the right of kingship belongs will be called the Lion of the tribe of Judah, and the obedience of the nations is his. Paul the Apostle, prayerfully reading and meditating on these passages, speaks of this in Galatians 3.16. He says this, the promises were spoken to Abraham and his seed. Listen to what Paul says. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. So Paul is pointing out here, what is your point, Paul? Paul? For one, the book of Genesis creates a sense of expectancy and hope. The first Adam blew it, as we saw last week, forfeiting the God-given right to rule in partnership with God. But as the story develops, God raises up another person, Abraham, from whom the second Adam will emerge. And this promised seed of Abraham will one day rule over and bring Blessing to all the nations of the world. The king is hidden in these promises. Do you see it? The king is hidden here. Like a tiny mustard seed sown in the garden of the world. One day the kingdom he brings will grow into a mighty tree that fills the earth. This brings us to the second section here, which we'll look at briefly. At verse 4, we see that Abraham, what does he do? responds to God, gets on the boat. So Abraham went. If you recall, the Lord said, go in verse one, and now this verse explains that he did what? He goes, he went. The Lord spoke, Abraham listened, and he obeyed. This is why Abraham goes on in the New Testament to be included in the hall of fame of faith in Hebrews 11, Listen to what Hebrews 11.8 says about Abraham. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to set out for a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he set out not knowing where he was going. He took his nephew, Lot, with him, and Abraham was how old? Seventy-five when he departed from Haran. These details remind us of a couple things. One is that God could have taken Lot and used him for the promises to come to fruition, but he doesn't. The second thing is that 75-year-olds have an important role to play in the kingdom of God. Yes, I heard some amens. Retirement opens new doors for kingdom ministry and opportunity. Seventy-five-year-olds are right in the thick of what God's doing. And what happens here at verse 5? They set forth to go to the land of Canaan, and when they had come to the land of Canaan, they journeyed to a sacred site at Shechem, this oak tree. Lots of things are here, lots of details, but the text is really setting the stage for the Lord to appear to Abraham in the next verse, which he does. Look at verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham, and he says to your offspring, I will give this land. So the Lord has spoken to Abraham, and now what happens? Now he appears to him. This is known as a theophany. Say theophany. Theophany. It means an appearance of God. This is the first recorded appearance of the Lord to a patriarch or an early father of Israel. It's a preview of what will happen at Mount Sinai when the Lord appears and in the tent of meeting and in the tabernacle. When the Lord appears, revelation flows. The Lord tells Abraham, to your offspring I will give this land. Abraham and Sarah won't possess the land. Why? It says right there in the text, because the Canaanites were in the land. His future descendants would possess the land. So in response to the Lord's appearance and promise, Abraham constructs an altar to the Lord. And Unlike those in the previous chapter, 11, who were building an impressive city and a tower, Abraham builds an altar. He's focusing on worshiping the Lord, the one who has appeared to him and who has spoken to him. Verse eight, look what happens here as we wrap up. Abraham and those traveling with him journey deeper into Canaan. Abraham builds another altar to the Lord and invokes the name of the Lord. Many nuances about worship, these early glimpses into what worship was like. So Abraham's journey to and through the land of Canaan suggests a couple things. Can I share them with you? First, Abraham believed The Lord. And he went when he was told to go, and he received further revelation as he journeyed. A second thing here, listen to this. Maybe you haven't thought of this before with this passage. Abraham walks through, lives, and worships in the land promised to him and his descendants. Old Testament commentators point out this. Listen to this. Symbolically, Abraham has already take in possession of the land. Through his actions, the exodus deliverance and conquest of the promised land are already accomplished. Abraham's journey of faith becomes a sign for people to to read at a later time. They could say, our father Abraham walked through this very land. He built altars to the Lord. He called on the Lord and he laid claim to this land. These are prophetic acts, which become more common later with the Hebrew prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and the others. Abraham believed and, in faith, acted on God's promises. Therefore, the journey of Abraham and Sarah has inspired countless people, like Jackie Pollinger, and you, and me throughout history to walk with God and trust God and His promises. As we'll see in the coming weeks, the Lord Himself has journeyed in some of the same parts that Abraham did. Through His incarnation, life, ministry, death, and resurrection, Jesus has laid claim to His promised land. You know what it is? the nations of the world. In Christ, the promised seed or descendant of Abraham, spoken here, the kingdom of God has broken into human history. So as we conclude, I wanna encourage you to do two things. One is to search your heart right now. What is God saying to you right now? Where are you in your journey with God? What step of faith is God asking you to take? And secondly, I'm gonna encourage you to meditate on this passage this week and ask God to help our community be a blessing to others, to the nations. Pay attention to where the Lord is sending you. Did you know we're all sent? All of us are sent to carry the kingdom of God wherever we were, wherever we are at work, at work, at school, in nursing homes, to plant churches around the world, we all carry the kingdom of God. So Lord, we ask you, as we sit before your word today, to speak to us. I ask Holy Spirit right now that you would come and bring the revelation that only you can bring. Speak to us. Tell us where to go.